Chapter Five of Aunt Hannah and Martha and John by Pansy and Mrs. C. M. Livingston. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Five, Perturbations. When Mrs. Adams prayed that morning for a special grace to bear special temptations, she may have had in mind the coming of her sister, Mrs. Hepsy Stone who was at that moment trying to keep an upright position in the stage as it jolted over rough country roads. Mrs. Adams went rapidly down the walk to welcome her, her round ample form contrasting with her sister's, which was lean and angular. Their faces, too, were very unlike. Mrs. Adams, strong, smooth, and placid, while the other face, though but a little older, was deeply wrinkled. Some of the lines, it is true, were caused by pain and sorrow, or rather by rebellion at pain and sorrow, and there were also traces of discontent and ill-humor. The other members of the family often wondered why it was that Hannah was patient and sweet-spirited, while Hepsy was so cross-grained. They said it was because they had different dispositions, but that could not altogether explain the difference in their lives and faces. It must be confessed that it was no small trial to Mrs. Adams, who had for so many years lived her even, methodical life, and had become accustomed to solitude, and enjoyed her quiet hours of reading, to admit one into close companionship so utterly different from herself, sister though she was. As girls they had never been congenial, one was sure to like what the other detested. Hepsy, too, was fond of interfering and setting up her opinion even in matters that did not pertain to her. Mrs. Adams had thought it all over before she had asked her sister to come. She knew she was preparing for herself whole seas of difficulties and temptations, but that was the way of duty, and she would not shrink. We shall see, she told herself, resolutely, if the grace of God is not strong enough to enable two old women to live together in peace. So she spoke only gentle words when Hepsy fretted at her hard lot, and she listened patiently to long eulogies on her deceased brother-in-law, and to sad complaints about the loss of the old home, knowing in her large-hearted pity that poor human nature is always thus inconsistent, holding things cheaply until they are gone, then putting upon them sums of untold value. So Joab Stone, who had been, to outward appearance, a stupid, dull old man, was now in his wife's eyes a saint and a hero, while the forlorn little house in a straggling valley had turned itself into a very model of convenience and comfort, with beautiful surroundings. Thus it is that old age paints the past with the same roseate hues with which youth gilds the future. Hepsy, Mrs. Adams said one fine morning, putting her head, arrayed in a deep cape bonnet, in at the door. Come out a while. It's a beautiful spring morning. It'll do you all sorts of good. Mrs. Stone sat by the sitting-room stove with a shawl about her shoulders, toasting her feet on the hearth. The idea of my going outdoors, she said when I'm taking medicine. It's as much as I can do to keep warm in the house, with the wind sifting into all the windows. You ought to have em listed, Hannah. I expect I shall catch my death. Do shut the door, won't you? You'll catch your life if you'd come out, her sister said, stepping in and dropping into a chair by the door, while she fanned herself with her sunbonnet. I've been digging around and got warmed up, and you would too, if you'd come out." You can't think how pretty it all is. The front yard got green last night. The lilacs are budded, and the daffodils and crocuses are almost out, and you ought to see the apple trees and peach trees, 
all pink and white, the creek in the orchard is rushing and tumbling along, and the colts and lambs are frisking about. I'm not so sure, but I'd like to take a little trot myself, if my joints were not so stiff. You do beat all, said Mrs. Stone. Come, Hepsy, do come out. It'll do you more good than medicine, won't you? Mebby, Hepsy said, rocking back and shutting her eyes. Mrs. Adams was soon hard at work again with the trowel, loosening the earth about her plants and thinking pleasant thoughts, as she was accustomed to do when alone. It is wonderful, she told herself, to have the earth made over new every spring. What can he do more when he makes the new heaven and the new earth? How condescending the Lord is to us. It looks as if he couldn't do enough to strengthen our weak faith. He must go and put in a picture here and there, so we won't fail to understand the great, grand story. Just then she saw her sister, wrapped in shawls, and a capacious hood tied over her ears, coming slowly down the garden walk. "'It won't do you any good to crawl along like an old caterpillar, Hepsy,' Mrs. Adams said, laughing. "'You must step off briskly and stir your blood. Isn't this air sweet?' "'It's cold, I know,' her sister said, shivering and drawing her shawl tighter about her neck. "'But isn't everything beautiful in the spring? And doesn't it strengthen your faith in the resurrection?' Mrs. Adams said, going on with her thought. "'Resurrection!' Mrs. Stone gasped, almost in horror. "'How in the world did you get to that?' "'Why, don't you see? When the green grass springs out of the bare earth, and little tender leaves come out on the dead-looking vines, and above all, when the ugly-looking bulbs I planted stick up green heads through the ground, and then come out in white and yellow flowers, it makes me as sure again that the dear bodies we have laid in the old burying-ground shall be raised in power, as the scripture says, and that my eyes shall behold them some spring morning. Don't you feel so too, Hepsy? No, I don't, said Hepsy. It's precious little I know about the resurrection, and you don't either. We haven't any call to go into such mysteries. And something like despair flitted over Mrs. Adams's face for an instant, but it soon cleared, and she said, Hepsy, come here, and I'll show you something, pointing as she spoke to a large old pear tree. There's a fat robin building her nest on that branch just under your chamber window, and you can watch her mornings and hear her sing. Isn't that nice? Hannah Adams, said Hepsy, you're getting childish, I do believe. What in the world do I want a robin's nest under my window for? Watch her, as if I'd stand around and watch a robin. And you don't seem to know that she and her young ones will make such a racket in the morning, I can't sleep a wink after four o'clock. Don't be a sentimental old woman, above all things, Hannah. There isn't anything more sickish than that. Mrs. Adams shut her lips tightly and went on with her digging without speaking. She was disappointed and hurt. She had lived for so many years on intimate terms with nature, knew all the ways and tricks of plants, insects, and birds, that she had forgotten, that not everybody shared her love for them. She would not keep silence, though, and appear to be offended with her blunt sister. She spoke, in a moment, of her plans for the summer garden, and asked Hepsy what vegetables she liked best. That evening, as they sat by the fire knitting, the question, How do you like John's wife? was suddenly propounded. It was Mrs. Stone who asked it. On the way to her sister's, she had made it convenient to spend a few days at the Belleville Parsonage. 
John Remington had not told his young wife beforehand that Aunt Hannah was not by any means a sample of all his aunts. He would, if he could, have spared her the ordeal of the visit, until she had become a more experienced housekeeper. Mrs. Adams had steered clear of the subject of John's wife thus far, because she shrank from hearing the criticism that would be sure to follow, but she answered now. "'Very much. Isn't she bright and pretty?' Mrs. Stone picked up a stitch before she replied. Then she said, "'Pretty enough, but she ain't any housekeeper.' "'No, I don't suppose she's perfect. You and I weren't at her age.' "'Perfect? I should think not. If you could have seen her bread, it was heavy and sour. Poor John.' He's got a hard row before him. You are great on conscience, Hannah, and everything of that sort. What kind of a conscience do you call that? Set up to take care of a house and look after the comfort of a man, make solemn promises and everything, and not know how to make bread. I say it's cheating. A girl hasn't any business to do it. Why doesn't she learn how? She can play jigs on the piano and sing enough to take the roof off, and John sitting there looking as proud as a peacock. For my part, I should have thought he'd have been mortified to death. Well, she will learn after a while. She is probably a nice housekeeper in other respects. No, she isn't. There was a great cobweb on the dining-room wall, and dust on the clock-shelf all the time I was there. How vexatious it was that Hepsy, with her sharp, prying eyes, should have gone there just at first, Mrs. Adams thought, while her fingers flew rapidly. She would never get over her prejudice against Martha. It was sorely trying to have anything that belonged to John condemned. There is one thing to be thought of, she said, trying to be calm. Martha has lived in the city all her life where people buy bread a great deal. When they do make it, they are accustomed to a different kind of yeast. It raises the bread very quickly and with little trouble. Of course, though, she has not had very much experience. She ought to have had experience, and she wasn't brought upright if she didn't know how to make yeast. Why didn't John get a sensible, smart wife while he was about it? But that's the way it goes. As soon as a man gets to be a minister, he seems to lose his wits for anything but looks. There's no fool in the world like a minister. He can be cheated and taken in at every turn. Half of them get wives without a bit of gumption. Don't, Hepsy, Mrs. Adams said, with such unwanted sharpness that her sister dropped her knitting-needle. "'Don't speak so of ministers. You hurt my feelings, and I think it is wrong. They are God's servants.' "'They're nothing but men,' persisted Mrs. Stone, "'chock-full of faults like all men, as far as I can see. And as for John's wife, if she ever gets to be a good housekeeper, I'll wonder. I don't believe she's of that stripe. She's sort of airy, and as full of book-knowledge as John himself.' I tell you what it is, Hannah. I hain't a grain of patience with a girl that's spent hours and hours every day practicing on the piano and set up nights dinging at French and German for what nobody knows, and then expect to set up housekeeping and have all sort of learning that she needs to use come to her just like the measles or whooping cough. It's going to get worse, too, in my opinion. There's a deal of talk about wider spheres, and there ain't a woman in a thousand that's half filled the sphere she's in. Women want to vote, and be ministers, and lawyers, and nobody knows what. There won't be any women pretty soon to keep house. I say, a woman hasn't any right to take nice, sweet wheat, 
and make it into a sour hard loaf fit for a cannonball. Mrs. Stone was on her hobby now. She was talking loud and, in her excitement, had grabbed off her steel-bowed spectacles and was gesticulating with them. Mrs. Adams would have laughed if she had not been so vexed and worried. Of course, young wives should be good housekeepers. It was mortifying that she seemed to be defending inefficiency, and that Hepsy seemed to think she required a lecture on bread-making. She, indeed, a queen among housekeepers. So she answered her sister sharply, and contrived to grow more and more nettled, until her frame of mind was such that she did not feel like family worship that night. Dorcas stared and wondered what had happened when dismissed to bed without it, and Aunt Hannah tossed half the night and resolved not to allow her temper to run away with her again. She had thought it conquered forever, but here it was, alive and rampant. She could not sleep, so she got up and wrote a few lines to Martha. "'Poor child,' she said, "'you had a bad time with your yeast and your bread. You used too many hops, and put the yeast in too small a dish to rise, are the secrets of your trouble.' unless, maybe, the yeast that you got of that cross-grained woman had something to do with it. Milk has a wonderful power of absorbing flavors. Who knows but yeast can absorb sharp words and bitter feelings. You won't be likely to put in too many hops again. Bread-making is something like religion. You may read all the books in the world on the subject, and you may have the best teaching, but you've got to have an experience. So don't be downhearted over it. When anybody tries as hard as you do, they will be sure to succeed. Remember, next time you make yeast of pressed hops, to break off a bit as big as a good-sized hickory nut. That's plenty. Live and learn. Don't think it's a small thing to fuss over. It isn't. It's a great thing. Satan has a hand in some bread-making, I verily believe, and is well pleased with the result. He likes to have sour bread turned out. He knows it makes dyspepsia and dyspepsia makes miserable, cross people that would rather die than live. It even puts the stomach in such a state that some get a horrible craving, and so take liquor and end up by being drunkards. John says he believes more in my yeast than my theology, does he? He always was a saucy boy, in a roguish way that you couldn't help liking. Tell him he has good reason to. He has eaten good bread for years made of the yeast, but while the theology is all right— my practice of it has been so lame and full of flaws, I don't wonder he hasn't much opinion of it. After all, my idea of it is about like this. I believe we are to take Jesus Christ as our physician, give up our case to him, and be perfectly sure that he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and then go about our work for him without doubts or fears. I never imagined that John's wife would write me a long letter now and then, it is almost better than getting letters from him, because you tell me about him, which he wouldn't likely do. I count it one of my special mercies. I hope you may have grace to bear patiently all the trials you will meet, whether they appear in the shape of hop-yeast or cantankerous parishioners. You'll find plenty of them, I've no doubt. It's a wonder how the Heavenly Father has patience with any of us. Mrs. Adams arose the next morning with her ruffled feelings calmed. The air, as she stepped out on the side porch, was filled with perfume from the orchard, and the sun was just putting into the eastern sky that wondrous picture, brief and glorious, which half the world have never yet seen. This woman had not missed the sight for years, but she watched it now as if it were a novelty. The distant blue hill was being touched and glorified. The mill-pond caught the glow, and little by little those ruddy beams crept over the world, 
till they reached down and sent a shaft of golden light straight by her through the open door upon the wall of her sitting-room, seeming to her devout nature like the benediction of the Lord resting upon her house. She got from that sunrise hour what she was designed to have, an uplifting of spirit and refreshment and enlargement of mind for the work of the day. It is free to all alike, but the few fall heir to the riches. It's a beautiful morning, she said a little later to Mrs. Stone, as she, too, stopped by the same door and looked out. Yes, but it'll rain tomorrow, was the answer, in a lugubrious tone. There was a circle round the moon last night, and there's a dampness in the air now. We've had so much damp weather this spring, it makes my rheumatism worse. Her sister Hannah thought, while she poured the coffee, that if she knew of anything that would produce a spirit of cheerful thankfulness and could be rubbed in like liniment, she would get Hepsy a bottle of it, cost what it might. She did not speak out. She had resolved to abide in peace that day and allow herself to speak no aggravating words to Hepsy. And considering her provocations, the day wore away quite successfully. But, alas, the evening brought its temptations. It was when they were making ready for bed. Perhaps Mrs. Adams was unusually tired, or, as the day had so nearly gone, had relaxed her vigilance. A new idea had struck Mrs. Stone. "'How lonesome it is, a great old house like this off in the country at night,' she said, while blinds were being shut and keys turned. She followed her sister about, trying doors and windows herself to make sure they were fast. "'I shouldn't think you would depend on locks. Why don't you have strong bolts on every door, Hannah?' "'Locks have served me very well forty years,' Hannah said grimly. "'That ain't to say they always will. "'They say that keys can be turned and locks slipped, "'just as easy as nothing. "'Think if somebody should get into the house "'and nobody but two or three women here "'way off from neighbors.' "'You forget that Peter sleeps in the kitchen chamber. "'Your hired man? "'Well, you never can tell what notions hired men'll take "'or what rascals they'll turn out to be.' He might rob you himself. Peter? Huh. Now, Hepsy, you don't know what you are talking about. You are saying the most ridiculous thing. I wouldn't have your notions for the world. Peter would as soon think of trying to knock the moon out of the sky as robbing me or anybody else. I've tried him going on fifteen years. Hannah Adams discovered just then that she was talking in rather a high key herself, so she lowered her voice and said, Hepsy, to tell the real truth, I don't depend on the locks, or on Peter either, for keeping me safely at night, but on the Lord who slumbers not nor sleeps. I used to feel nervous years ago, till I got a text to help me, and that is, what time I am afraid I will trust in thee. I just trust him, and all the fears go away. Now you'd better try it too." but Mrs. Stone had talked herself into a state of extreme nervousness. "'That's all very well as far as it goes,' she said. "'But you don't suppose the Lord's going to take care of you if you leave your doors wide open, do you? Now, in my opinion, you've got something to do yourself.' Examining the lock of her room door as she talked. The chambers connected, so Mrs. Stone set herself to making both doors secure for the night. She slipped a pair of scissors and two nails through the top of each key, in a way that should prevent their being turned. Then she hunted about for something to brace the doors. She made several ineffectual attempts on one with her umbrella opening and shutting the door, and rattling about, 
while her sister was snugly stowed away in bed, saying occasionally, "'Do, Hepsy, go to bed.' The umbrella was at last fancied a success, and a chair, after much clatter, was supposed to secure the other. Her next care was the windows. She tried every fastening in both rooms. One in her sister's room was open, from both top and bottom. She shut it quietly and fastened it, with a furtive glance at the bed as she did so, but Hannah had heard it. "'Don't shut that window, Hepsy,' she said. "'We must have air.' "'Not night air,' said Mrs. Stone. "'Why not? That's all the air there is, and I never heard of anybody that could live without air.' "'You'll catch your death.' "'Yes, I shall, if the window is shut. That window has been open summer and winter for years and years.' "'Well, it ain't safe,' Mrs. Stone said, in a sepulchral whisper. "'There's a ladder I noticed leaning against the back kitchen. "'Somebody could climb up just as easy.' "'Let them climb, then. "'I guess they would have hard work carrying you or me down the ladder in the night, "'and that's all there is here to steal. "'So open it wide. The air is rather close.' "'When Mrs. Adams spoke in that decisive tone, "'Mrs. Stone always yielded to it,' though it was sorely against her will to do so in this case. So up the window went with somewhat of a slam, while the irate woman muttered, "'When people think they're very wise, there's no use trying to teach em. But you don't know all that's going on in the world. There was a family murdered last winter in Dutchess County,' speaking again in a low, gruesome tones, and as though she had lived all her life in a great metropolis. "'Hannah, I do wish, if I'm going to live with you, you'd sell this pokerish old place and move into the village. Why don't you? Now, Mrs. Adams had borne a good deal for one night. This was the last straw. Sell her dear old home? A pokerish place, indeed. She sat up in bed and spoke some plain truths, not mildly, ending with, Hepsy, if you don't like my home... You are at liberty to leave it as quickly as you please. I shall never sell it. Then she turned over her pillow, gave it several vigorous thumps, and lay down again, and there was silence except something that might have been a long-drawn sigh from the next room. Mrs. Adams' conscience, awake and alert on duty, administered the usual castigations while she tossed and sighed, just as she had done the night before, telling herself at last, I'm making a dead failure of living nowadays, that's sure. Hepsy's been here three weeks, and I've lost my temper more times than I have in the last three years. She's made of different stuff from me, and that's all there is about it. I suppose she can't make herself over now, at her time of life. I might have been more pitiful and patient. Poor Hepsy. End of chapter 5